Hi, and welcome to a special episode of Politics in Question. One of the topics we work on in the political reform program at New America is collaborative governance or co-governance. Co-governance refers to a broad range of dynamic civic engagement models and interactive decision-making that allow people outside and inside government to work together in designing policy. There are a growing number of real-world cases of co-governance that we can learn from, and New America has put together a publication drawing on five of these case studies across the United States. Uh, as a special episode, we focus on Colorado, where a successful co-governance process ultimately led to a victory on enacting statewide paid leave. And you can learn more about that in our show notes. Now, on with the special episode. In November 2020, voters in Colorado passed a ballot measure that created a statewide paid family and medical leave. Of course, that successful ballot measure was actually the result of years of organizing and work from a much broader movement, one that included bureaucrats, citizens, advocates, and legislatures at the local, state, and federal level. My name is Holly Russin Gilman, and I'm a fellow in the political reform program at New America where I work on civic engagement and participatory democracy. Engagement is a crucial institution for American democracy, but to thrive, it often needs reforms, support, and new creative ideas. Today, I'm joined by Colorado State Senator Faith Winter. She's long been a supporter of paid family and medical leave, and she was an original sponsor for a bill to create this policy. In our conversation, we'll be talking to her about the civic engagement and participation that was part of getting this policy passed and what other states can learn from Colorado's experience. Thank you, Senator, for making the time to talk to us today. Our first question, could you please help us set the stage a bit and tell us about the legislation and the political backdrop behind getting it passed? Thanks for having me on today. This is a policy that we know is incredibly popular with regular human beings that want to care for their children. They want to care for their parents. They want to be able to recover themselves when they face an illness. And this is one of those policies where there was a lot of lobby interest inside the building against the bill and a lot of popularity outside the building. And ultimately we won because we put the power to the people outside of the Capitol building to say, this is what we want and we need this now. And the FMLA effort was a collaboration between so many different sectors of democracy. This kind of collaboration is interesting because it can offer the form of collaborative governance or co-governance. Basically, that's models of democracy that allow for greater participation and say for citizens and groups that are usually left out of the governing process, but can also be hard to bring so many groups together in a big movement. What strategies in this movement worked well to build those relationships and facilitate collaboration? What worked well is storytelling. Because people can disagree on facts. They can disagree on how much this program will cost, on how many people will use it, on what the average length of use is. But what people can't disagree with is a story and a heartfelt story. And that's what changes hearts and minds. And so when you hear a story about someone that had to take their dad off of life support while they were in a break room, instead of being by his side to hold his hand, that has an impact on your decision-making. When you hear from a woman that sold all her jewelry 
to take care of her mom as she died because she lost her job. That has impact. And so really what we did was tell the stories of people that needed this, needed this for their own self-care, needed this for taking care of their family members, but also the stories of businesses. There was a business owner that came to committee and said, I don't want to tell my waitress she has to come back two weeks after giving birth, but I literally don't have the money to pay her while she's gone. There's a better way. And the better way is a social insurance program. And so really, we worked hard to tell the story of both business owners and people that need this benefit. That's really helpful. And I think that point about storytelling makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, you guys did such an effective job really centering this around people. You know, I'd just be curious, were there ways where you saw that a strategy sort of where you pivoted into something that you thought would work, but then had to be adjusted? And, you know, we're also really curious just how the coalition functioned together, sort of if there were you know, conflicts or opportunities to pivot around challenges, sort of how those got resolved. So this bill was run six times before it was a successful ballot initiative. I ran it five of those six times. And many of those times I introduced the bill and we were a divided legislature when the Republicans had control and actually was killed by two Democratic women first. Uh, in the early years, but we introduced it knowing we were going to lose, but it gave us an opportunity to lose forward. And what I mean by that is we were building a movement and not just trying for a one-time policy win. And so every time we brought this legislation forward, we got more businesses involved that supported this. We built the coalition. We brought on pediatricians and NICU nurses And we found more people to tell their story. And every time we brought this forward, we had more media attention, a bigger coalition, and we refined the policy. When we first introduced this, we didn't have the perfect policy on how to fund it. And we eventually figured out the best way to fund it that was very responsible, very fiscally responsible. And so every time we brought it forward, I considered it losing forward in a way to build a movement and include more people and build up more leaders. Yeah, I'd be really curious if you can say anything more about sort of, you know, managing those political relationships from the legislative side, you know, from the news coverage seemed like, you know, this was a sensitive issue. I guess what we're trying to figure out is what are sort of lessons in terms of sort of managing these relations that we can kind of extrapolate for others in the movement. Absolutely. One of the first hard decisions was actually moving this forward, knowing that the Democratic House was going to kill the bill. It's not popular to divide your caucus. Um, And we decided that this was a big enough, important enough bill to move forward and actually have accountability around a no vote. And that was a pretty bold statement in a statement that I couldn't have done without the backing of outside organizations that said, we will have your back. We will actually do the accountability work. We will have this conversation about those Democrats that voted no. And that changed the calculation the next year we brought it forward, where we had the support of everyone in my caucus. 
and moved forward. And then we had a difficult decision in the last year that we brought this bill. And it was probably the time that there was a fissure in co-governance. And it was when we faced our governor and how he wanted this policy to be implemented. And we'd been working on this for years. And we knew that the coalition really wanted this policy to be accessible, available, affordable. And we had worked to maintain 12 weeks of paid leave. We had worked to make sure that we had how much it was going to cost was on a progressive basis so that low-income folks paid less and higher-income folks paid more. And the benefits you had were more if you were a minimum wage worker. We worked to make sure that it provided paid family and medical leave for parents and for your own self-care. But the governor really wanted to do it through the private insurance market. And probably one of the hardest parts of this time was do we move forward with something the governor will sign and deliver something where people will have paid family leave or do we fight for a social insurance program, which we know is better and get nothing. And ultimately, we decided at that moment to move forward to try and provide something, but we weren't in line with the advocates. But we didn't know the advocates had a bottom line that had to be social insurance. And so there was a lack of communication at that moment, but ultimately having a private insurance program didn't play out and we got the better policy passed because we gave the power to the people. That's really, it's an amazing story and it's super inspiring. I'd be really curious also how you feel like, you know, your own trajectory as a former organizer who moved from the state house and ran for the state Senate in a very strategic way to unseat a Republican, you know, how does that, what are these examples tell us? Because, you know, we often think of co-governance as a static stake or collaboration as something with really specific boundaries around the role of advocacy versus politicians versus bureaucrats. But I'd be curious your thoughts about what happens when movement people shift into the bureaucracy or the political realm and how to continue to align the movement, build those relationships and continue collaborating when roles change. Absolutely. And I think about this every single day and it is a tension. First and foremost, I consider myself a community organizer, regardless of the title I hold. And for me, that means that I build power through people. And I bring people together to express their opinion and do systemic change. There's a lot of different ways that power is expressed. And unfortunately, one of the major ways power is expressed is who can pay for lobbyists in the capital. And I want to champion and carry the bills and the issues that don't have money for lobbyists. So the Chamber of Commerce clearly has money for lobbyists. But do you know who doesn't? A single mom working a minimum wage job who needs time to take care of her child. A cancer patient who works at the airport running a shuttle who needs time off to actually take care of her chemotherapy. They don't have a lobbyist. And so when they don't have a lobbyist, it's my job to actually build that collective power and 
there is this myth in America that elected officials act singularly, that we make decisions on our own, and there's just one person out there making this decision. And in reality, we are only as strong as the people we bring together in the teams we build. And that's why co-governance is so important. And that is really the success of passing paid family and medical leave in Colorado was building a team that came together that made sure that we had more power than the moneyed lobby and the moneyed interest in the capital. And so we brought that team together and we worked really hard to organize together and actually win a policy that was popular with voters. You know, we know sometimes that political relationships can feel transactional or zero sum. So how can movements build effective relationships to share power while also being honest about the nature of political relationships? Yeah, in in moving from an organizer and advocate to being elected, it's a different job. And when you're an advocate, you are focused on your one issue or a select number of issues. And your job is to push as far as you can, to get as much as you can. And as an elected official, your job is to actually work in the reality of what is possible. So there are some elected officials that will go out and regardless of what happens, stand in their power and their truth, but they might not ever pass a bill. And part of my job of being an elected official is to work in the art of what is possible and create as much space as we can. And what happens in true co-governance is that advocates create more space for me to negotiate. So when they tell more stories, get more media attention, have more rallies, send more postcards, asking for more in what they want for paid family medical leave, they create the space for me as an elected official to negotiate on what I can pass. And you can only do that when you build trust. So I'm negotiating. And I'm not going to get everything the advocates want. I'm just going to get everything I want. I wish I could, but that's not the reality. It's definitely not the reality in what the governor in Colorado wanted around this issue. But having that trust to understand that the advocates are going to go to the left. They are going to be louder. And I'm going to negotiate on what's possible, but everything that they do creates more space for me to negotiate. And that takes trust and communication and updates to talk to each other to actually get to the end. That's super interesting and super helpful for us as we are also you know, trying to build out resources on co-governance. And so when you look back on this, you know, on this movement and learning about collaborating and bringing people into the governing process, especially for an institution as exclusive as the legislature, how can others replicate that? How can other states or levels of government learn from this powerful experience? And what changes do we need to make to make our legislative institutions more participatory and responsive? So first on making our institutions more participatory and responsive is elect more organizers and elect more diverse people. 
So my allies in the state Senate, my allies in the state house, they tend to be young. They tend to be former organizers. They tend to be BIPOC and GLBTQ. And we come at this in a different setting. We come at this as a way to do systemic change. And in a way that this isn't about me, it's not about my ego, it's not about my title, it's actually about making sure that that mom who just gave birth doesn't have to go back to work in two weeks. But the cancer patient has the time and space and capacity to take care of themselves while they get chemotherapy, right? I don't care if anyone knows my name in 10 years, but in 10 years, when a mom has a baby and has 12 weeks off, and can actually bond with her child without worrying about her job, that's what making a systemic difference is. And so we need to elect people that view building power in a framework of you build power on behalf of community, not on behalf of yourself. And I've never built power on behalf of myself. It's always for community, I'm bringing in those diverse voices. And in order to have more young people, more BIPOC people, more GLBTQ people elected, we need to talk about how much we're paying elected officials. Because for the majority of elected offices in this country, it is minimally paid. And the hardest thing I do is figuring out how to pay my mortgage and how to pay for childcare, how to pay for summer camps and do this work. And so I work outside of the legislature and that's time taken away from stakeholding. It's time taken away from working with constituents. It's time taken away from policy research. And what happens is you have, frankly, a lot of older white folks that are lawyers and real estate agents or retired that can easily run for office. And it's much harder to get an actual representation in elected office. So one, we have to recruit people to run for office. We have to support them, but we need to start talking about elected official pay and support because it's really hard to do this job. You know, I'd be really curious, you know, you've talked about the power of these relationships and I really appreciate what you're saying about, you know, ensuring engagement, especially of traditionally marginalized constituencies. So how can we, how can other elected officials build those relationships if they don't have the community organizing background that you do? How do we make it easier for people to have these relationships with their elected officials? I would say to the elected officials, do the work to reach out and just listen. I think we talk too much and don't listen enough. So how can we listen more and hear the stories? So for me, one of the most annoying sayings in politics is you have to have thick skin to do this. And, you know, people are really mean to elected officials. And I take my fair share of criticism and it hurts. And I feel it in my heart, but I move on quickly. And so I tell people that are looking to run for office, you don't need thick skin, you need resilient skin. And what that gives you is you still have the empathy and ability to fill the hopes and dreams of your constituents and understand their pain and their struggles. And you can't actually feel that if you don't listen, if you don't reach out, if you don't do the work to 
go outside of your bubble, go outside of your neighborhood, go outside of people involved in politics and listen to their experiences and their struggles. And for people looking to connect with elected officials, I would say we're no one special. We have a title and we have a badge, but we have our own experiences. And the way that you bring your experience and values to the table and connect to elected official that brings their experience and values to the table is through storytelling. And so don't look at us as some elite, really smart people. We're just normal people. I'm just a mom that is balancing trying to get my daughter to diving practice and make sure that my son is registered for middle school and that I'm working three jobs and trying to pay my mortgage, right? I'm just like everyone else. And so walk into a room, build those relationships by storytelling and work authentically, right? Um, When you come to me and you tell your story or you see something I do and you say, thank you, we're building a relationship. And politics, just like anything else, is relationship-based. So build those relationships because that's how we build power. That's extremely powerful. And Rena, we're so grateful to have public servants like you in our democracy. You talked a little earlier about losing forward. When it works well, it can help you know refine a movement or a policy into something better than the original draft. But how do you keep those relationships going? You know, if the if the press or if you know the losing part is sort of highlighted and not the sort of moving beyond to the sort of bigger picture item, how do you sort of explain that back to constituents or advocates when there's frustration, for example? You have to celebrate every success. And the ultimate success was passing the policy and having the voters support the policy. But there are other successes along the way. Adding 10 more businesses to the coalition is a success. Getting an opinion editorial published is a success. Having a tweet storm that the governor notices is a success. And everything adds up and it's cumulative. And I view the world that Power is infinite, not confined. And so how do we actually share power and grow power? And part of the way we do that is by celebrating each step forward. And it might not be the ultimate end goal of passing a policy, but getting one more business signed on is a big deal. So how do we celebrate that and recognize the work and acknowledge the work and celebrate the work? Because that's what builds a movement versus building a one-time win. That makes a lot of sense to, to us. And you mentioned earlier that the final decision for this policy got out to the people. You know, so for context, when the policy actually passed, right, it wasn't through the legislature, but through a ballot measure. So how did you pass that effort off to advocates? Would love to hear more about that. We had worked with advocates for a long time to actually use the ballot process as an alternative. Um, So we had polling information that we made sure got leaked to the business lobby, for example, Um, to show that this was really popular on the outside and in co-governance when it was my bill, my name was on it, but I was relying on advocates 
to help build the coalition and provide testimony. And when we sent it to the ballot, I was still there and doing a lot of the debates. I fundraised for the initiative, um, made sure that we were getting yard signs out, texted voters, talked to voters. And so it goes both ways, right? Whether my name was on it or it was a ballot initiative, it was co-governance and we were a team. And ultimately it was about strategy and what we could do to get this across the finish line and making sure that we were connected and making those decisions together. That's really powerful. And then I think about sort of adding the COVID layer on top of all of this. And I just, it's so hard to imagine just, you know, running a ballot measure during a pandemic, you know, how block walking and all of that is just so much more difficult. And I'd be curious your thoughts about lessons that you've learned sort of doing this through a pandemic and sort of any policy changes that you see to make our institutions more participatory and having more avenues for direct democracy, you know, both during times of crisis and how to reform institutions in a more ongoing and sustainable way. Yeah, I mean, I just, I have to be so grateful and thankful for our field team from the ballot initiative because they figured out how to collect signatures when we were basically still in stay-at-home orders. And they had single-use pens, they had masks, they door knocked and stood six feet away. They were at grocery stores and managed to do it in a way that protected people and made sure we weren't spreading COVID and also collected enough signatures and did a phenomenal job, right? And so the basic tenet of organizing is starting with where people are at. And we were already starting with where people were at. They cared about paid family leave. They wanted paid family leave. The pandemic showed even more how close we all were to needing paid family leave. And we were nervous about about safety. And so we started with where people are at. You can sign this, you can have a mask on, single-use pen, there's sanitizer. We've got you, right? And so it's the basic tenets of organizing, whether it's a pandemic or not. You start with where people are at. You start with their concerns. You start with what they're concerned about. And you go from there. And our field team was incredible and worked so hard. And I'm so thankful for them for, one, making sure that we got the signatures, but also that we contacted enough voters that we won by such a high margin. You know, I'd be curious, you know, COVID is something that you've been working on for a long time and, you know, took special resonance in this moment. Um, you know, I would just be curious, any other lessons, especially as, you know, we're still navigating this pandemic and there will probably be future pandemics. And so how to think about any other lessons, you know, one pushing for change during an emergency and to think about you know, places that they couldn't afford the extra policies when they were facing an economic crisis. That was a critique that you heard, sort of how you learn to push back against that and what we can learn from that. Yeah, so the business community had been against this policy in the best of times and the worst of times. It was never the right time and it will never be the right time to actually take care of workers. And I think that was important because, you know, they they pushed back regardless of what the economy was. And it was important for us to tell the story that this isn't just about COVID, right? Paid family and medical leave is about having babies and cancer and heart attacks and knee replacement. It's not just about COVID. 
I think COVID showed people how close they were to needing this policy, but it wasn't the only reason to pass it. And it was popular before, it was popular after, it was popular during, and it actually has the benefit of helping businesses out. We know we have the research that shows it increases employer retention, which right now we know businesses are facing employee shortages all over the country, in part because they're not treating employees good enough, right? And we know that when you have paid family and medical leave, you're more likely to keep your employees. They're more likely to come back after leave. Women are more likely to stay in the workforce after having paid family and medical leave. And so it was interesting because we had to highlight the importance of the pandemic, but also remind people that it wasn't just about the pandemic. And this need and the need for this policy, both from the business side and the human side, existed before and will exist after. And as I said before, organizing is about starting with where people are. In, in COVID, people were scared and they were fearful about their health and where they're going. And being able to use that as a building block, as a reason to pass this policy, and also listening to constituents about their fears was really important. You know, some of your colleagues in the legislature also described the process of creating state paid family and medical leave. For example, one early step came all the way back in 2013 when the legislature expanded the definition of family to include same-sex couples, non-married partnerships, and adopted families. This is a pretty creative use of the legislative process and long-term planning. When you have a goal as big as a new statewide policy, how can a collaborative movement work together to break down the steps and then plan for long-term success? The way a movement works together is by providing all the separate pieces. So you need a really good policy. You need, we know, and there's a lawsuit right now at the state level on our policy. And we've gone to the Supreme Court before on this policy. So you need a really solid policy, which meant we need good policy people, we needed good lawyers. And then you needed good organizers and good storytellers that could build power through people. So you have a solid foundation of policy, you have a solid foundation of law, and then you have organizers building power through people, and then you have legislators that are working with inside the system to push the narrative and then you have a really good communications plan to take that organizing work and that storytelling and win over the hearts and minds of people. And that all has to work together in collaborative governance where you acknowledge this is my niche. This is what I'm supposed to do at this moment in order to move this forward. And I'm going to trust that the lawyer over here is doing that. I'm going to trust that the organizer is doing that. I'm going to trust that the field team is doing that. I'm going to trust that the TV commercial that comes out is going to tell our story in the right way. And so making sure that you have different talents on your team, that you have brought them together in a way where they trust each other and move forward together. Having, you know, had the win, what happens now to these relationships, right? Does it move mostly to implementation or sort of how do we keep those relationships moving on? And of course, you mentioned the legal challenges that you're now working on with this policy. So we'd be curious about how you're kind of managing that, those external relationships. 
So we're continuing to make sure that this gets implemented in the right way, because the worst thing that could happen is that this doesn't actually go well. Um, so we're working on making sure the state government's hiring the right people to do this. We're making sure the policy's in the right place. We're making sure that we're keeping community updated. There's going to be rulemakings. And when there's rulemakings, we have to turn people out to talk about those rulemakings. And then we know that, you know, paid family and medical leave is really important. It's not the last policy we need to pass to make sure we're protecting workers. So, for example, I ran the Power Act this year, which we lost, lost forward. Hopefully we lost forward. Um, and that's changing the definition of sexual harassment from severe pervasive to something that actually makes sense for the modern workplace. And many of those partners that I worked with uh, on paid family medical leave, we are now working with on making sure we're updating our workplace harassment standards. We worked with those partners to make sure we updated our equal pay standards. We're working with our partners to make sure we're expanding access to affordable housing. And so when you build power and you, when you build a movement, it's not about a singular issue. And it was fantastic that we won on paid family and medical leave, but now we have relationships. Now we have a coalition. Now we have an ecosystem of creating change and what else is next and what can we do next? And that's what we're doing. One last question is just, this, this movement was so interesting in sort of its cross ideological and partisan diversity. I'd be curious if you have any lessons for other people in other parts of the country seeking to find issues where they can kind of bridge the ideological spectrum, sort of if there's any takeaways from this experience. For other elected officials, my number one takeaway is there are issues that are very unpopular with inside the building. And it's based on who has money and who doesn't. And I asked my fellow local elected officials to remember that. Because this issue was so unpopular inside the building. In fact, the last time we ran it, it was the most lobbied against bill in the state capitol. There's 211 lobbyists registered against paid family medical leave. There's 100 legislators. So there were basically two lobbyists for every individual legislator to make sure that this didn't happen. And yet we would go and do polling outside the building and it polled at 62, 63%. And it's hard not to get stuck in what we call the capital bubble. And so to my fellow elected officials, remember who you're there for. And it's not the lobbyist that talks to you every morning. It's actually the people outside the building. And those people don't have the money and resources to send the lobbyists to you every morning. And then to the advocates, big changes take time. You can't win big change in one year. It'd be really fantastic if we could. And sometimes we get lucky enough. But big changes take time to win over hearts and minds, to build coalitions, to create the ecosystem that we need to create change. And incremental change is frustrating, but it works. And we eventually get to where we need to go. 
This has been super powerful. And, you know, we've learned so much from your expertise and really applaud your efforts. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? I would just share that I think politics is about relationships and not giving up. And we're taught so many times that we should get automatically win on the first try, get where we're going, and that we shouldn't have a conversation and listen and try and thread the needle. Let's always try and thread the needle. Let's be persistent. Let's have resilient skin where we keep moving forward. And together we can actually build power and build movements that change the world. What a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Senator. We're extraordinarily grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.